Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, July 24th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Survival rate is not the only issue at hand. We have to also focus on our health care system as a whole. State officials continue to express concerns over a hospital system on the brink of crisis as the state faces its worst month of the pandemic. Then the unceasing trend of high cases and hospitalizations has some school administrators and lawmakers going against the grain. Plus, a national prison reform group has its eyes on Mississippi following the governor's veto of a comprehensive reform bill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's hospitals remain on the brink of crisis as the steady trend of high cases usher in the worst month of the pandemic in the state. After reporting 27,900 cases between March 11th and June 30th, the state has added over 20,000 in July, shooting the cumulative total to over 48,053 cases. 18 to 29-year-olds represent the most infected demographic, with a growing number of cases in those even younger. Governor Tate Reeves says that while cases in this age group or this age range rather are less likely to result in death, they can serve as transmitters to those who are more vulnerable. We don't just look at it, what does it mean to you, the first iteration of an individual who contracts the virus. While that's important, it's not the only thing that is important. It's when that 27-year-old contracts the virus, and then goes home and gives it to a mom or a dad. Well, maybe that mom or dad is going to be perfectly fine as well because they are healthy. But what happens if that mom or dad is a primary care provider in a nursing home? And they take the virus because of this community transmission into that nursing home. Unknowingly, by the way, nobody is intentionally spreading the virus, or at least no one halfway sane is intentionally spreading the virus. 
But this is the iterations that we're dealing with. The young person gets the virus. They go home because they live with their mom or their dad. They give their mom or their dad the virus. Then, in the third iteration, the mom or the dad goes into a nursing home and gives that virus to somebody who's 75 years old, 85 years old, whose mortality rate is very different than the first person who got it. Reeves' example is not speculative. After an early period of concern, outbreaks in long-term care facilities were trending down in June, hitting a low of 73 in mid-June. But since then, those outbreaks are on the rise again. There are now 170 such incidents in the state, surpassing the previous high of 137 on May 30th. Widespread transmission also continues to put a strain on the Mississippi's health care system. Dr. Thomas Dobbs is the state's health officer. If we look at our hospital capacity, we see ongoing strain in the, in the health care system. Our total hospitalized patients with confirmed coronavirus is, nine, is 975. We've had a mild drop in our total ICU use at, at 278, but an increase in, in patients on the ventilators up to 163. Again, the ICUs are filled about 40% essentially with COVID patients, um, so a, a, big, a big proportion of that um, is, is certainly straining the health care system. We have eight hospitals with zero ICU beds, but I would like to say thank you to um, the health systems and the hospitals across the state who are working very diligently to add additional intensive care space for you and your families. We've seen um, them add more beds on, online so that there's care available, but this is, this is really a strain. You know, it's, it's kind of like when you have to work 80 hours in a week when you're not used to working that hard. I mean, that's, well, no one should be used to working that hard. Um, but, you know, that's, it's something that's going to be hard to sustain. But thank, I would like to thank them for bringing those, those beds online to take care of sick Mississippians. Dr. Dobbs also says there are holes in the narrative that cases are up because testing has increased. He affirms cases are up because residents are sick. He says in addition to the hard data, there is anecdotal evidence in the parking lots of urgent care centers. It's not increased testing that's driving this. It's, it's more sick people that's driving this. And we have been doing actually relatively – so I, I, I challenge you to drive by some urgent cares and see what's going on. And are they, are they slow? Or are there people lined up at 8 in the morning to get tested? And why are they getting tested? It's because they're sick. Or maybe their, their family is sick. And so it's really sick people out there that are getting tested. So, um, but if you look at our trajectory of tests, they've been relatively stable. Um, and it may well be as we get more information back, we've had a little bit of an uptick. But – one of the things, and this is what the White House uses as one of their major indicators, is your percent positive. So our percent positive has increased. It hasn't decreased. If, if, you're, if you're getting more tests, if you're getting more positive cases because of it's an artifact of testing, then your percent positive is going to drop. And, and we haven't seen that at all. Our percent positive has increased because we have a lot more cases out there. It's just, it's just out there. Due to the trend of high cases over the last few weeks, Reeves is once again considering extending periods and adding more counties to his mask mandate, saying there are signs the orders are working in the targeted areas. Because it's been less than two weeks uh, since we put those additional measures in, I think we will let, I don't think we'll take anyone off tomorrow. Uh, I think we'll let, we'll, we'll probably let that go at least another week. Um, in, in all the counties that are currently on it from the original 10 that we put on. There are counties, and there are a lot of them, by the way, that we have put additional restrictions on that have bought in that we are seeing 
at a minimum, a flattening, and in some cases, we're actually seeing a downturn in the number of cases. That's the outcome that we want, and we will be looking to uh, use those criteria to add uh, tomorrow. As Reeves looks to add more counties to the list, he continues to encourage school leaders to find creative ways to conduct in-class learning as the school year nears. I think that that we need an option for in-school learning. Uh, Our districts have had months and months and months to come up with plans and to think outside the box, to come up with innovative ideas on ways in which they can safely get back in the classroom. And I anticipate that we will have some districts that, and I hope it's all the districts, that will be willing to produce innovative plans to get our kids back in the classroom in a safe, responsible way. Coming up, the unceasing trend of high cases and hospitalizations has some school administrators and lawmakers going against the grain. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a parent on the go, but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As the new school year approaches, school communities in Mississippi are getting similar messages from national and statewide leaders. Children need to be in the classroom. But that message is getting more resistance as the state and much of the country face the worst period of COVID transmission to date. Representative Tom Miles, a Democrat from Forrest, recently requested the Mississippi Department of Education delay all instruction until after Labor Day. He tells our Desiree Frazier he's hearing concerns from constituents. I've always um, been one that's tried to speak up for our public schools and our and our children and our teachers and uh, whether if it's state testing or the condition of our schools or even with the school start date now with the concerns with the coronavirus going around um, you know I always have a, a, a listening ear to those that that, that want to talk about how we can improve our state and our public education system as a whole. What are you hearing from parents, teachers, administrators? Um, you're hearing a lot of folks that are scared, really. Uh, they're afraid with the virus, with the numbers that have this week alone, we've had over 5,000 cases. And last week we had, seems like a thousand every day close to it. And they're just concerned of the unknown, the, the concerns I hear of, you know, what if my kid goes to school and, they get sick at school. Um, you're hearing from teachers. You know, I've got health problems or I have a child that has health problems or a mom or dad that I live with has health problems or my spouse has health problems. And they're worried about, you know, contracting this virus and taking it back to one of their loved ones. Uh, but the concerns that you have, I think the State Board of Education, I heard a comment made that was that was a district decision. Well, I think. Many of us believe that all of our students should be on the same schedule across the state and that that shouldn't be pinned back on the district. This is something something that should be made by the State Board of Education because we had everyone on the same page, everyone on the same schedule. What do you want to see happen? Well, I would like to see what what I've heard from many parents and teachers that uh, let's – Wait to closer to Labor Day or the first of September, I think, 
um, Madison County um, had a good example yesterday. Many, maybe many, many others. I would like to see that done statewide. But you have so many school districts that are afraid to, to you know, what to do, and they don't really know what to do. So we're asking for direction from the State Board of Education to give us something for all of our school districts across the state. Democratic Representative Tom Miles is from Forrest. In a press briefing yesterday, Governor Reeves acknowledged the rate of infection for school-aged children is rapidly rising. 3,443 tested positive from March the 11th until January, excuse me, until July the 12th. 3,443 over that um, four-month period in the last eight days. These are age group 0 to 17, 1,160 have tested positive. Uh, so uh, at this point, that's a, obviously a 34% increase in total cases the first four months versus the last eight days. At least one school district is electing to wait until after the Labor Day holiday to resume. Madison County Schools announced earlier this week it will not resume classes until September 3rd. Charlotte Seals is the district superintendent. Since the 4th of July, we have seen a steady uptick in the number of cases in the state and in our county. And based on guidelines from our Department of Health, we're very concerned that with these increased numbers in communities and it's being spread through throughout the community, that they told us you're going to see cases in schools. And what happens, there's a threshold. If we were to have, say, a class and three students tested positive in that class, we would have to send that teacher and every student in that class home to quarantine for 14 days. That's considered an outbreak. But then if you have three outbreaks in a school, then you have to uh, close the entire school. So we're very concerned about starting in the midst of this increase in numbers because if there's an increase in numbers of cases in a county, chances are you're going to see there's a greater odds that you're going to have more cases in the school, which then leads to possible we are starting school and then literally within days we run the risk of having to shut the school down or to send a groups of students home. So we felt it was prudent to let's wait, let's hopefully see our numbers go down and decrease. And then if our numbers decrease across the state, across the county, the chances of the number of cases in our schools should hopefully go down as well. Were you hearing from parents about this? We had some concerns from parents, yes. Uh, you know, you're, you, we have 13,000 plus students in our district. And so, you know, there are very different opinions about this. And each family is unique and has, and has different needs. So there are some that were concerned, that, you know, were concerned about delaying, uh, and, and asked for that delay. And then there are others that, you know, of course, they work. Both parents may work and they need to get their children back into school. And so you have different opinions on all different sides. At the end of the day, I have to, uh, as the leader of the district, really look at all the factors and then make a decision with the sa- that at the top of the list will be the safety of our students and our staff. Did teachers come to you with concerns as well? We had some teachers to express concerns. And again, it's a tough decision. It's a tough call for them because most, I will tell you, all of our teachers want to be back in school with their children, with our students, you know. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of fear amongst teachers in terms of the, their well-being and safety. So, yes, I mean, you know, I think on, on all fronts you have different opinions about this. Just like in a community, there are different thoughts about it. Teachers have uh, uh, different opinions about it. It depends on where you, you know, on, on situations and where you are with your life and everything. But, yes, we've had some concerns. Our boys by, by teachers, yes. 
There are more than 140 school districts in the state, and there are only a couple who have decided to delay opening. So you're one of only a couple. Did that concern you at all, taking this stand? Well, you know, I felt at the end of the day, as the leader of the district, I have to be willing to step up and do what I think is in the best interest of our of our school community. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Oh, I just think, you know, it is a, you know, I empathize and understand that, that there's a lot of anxiety out there. Believe me, I get that. We have a staff uh, that have worked, that are working moms and working dads and trying to figure out this. And so it is very complex. You know, I want people to know that these are really tough decisions and they're not made in isolation. It's looking at many, many factors. And, you know, I plan today. This will start September 3rd via virtual and via face-to-face, uh, and we look forward to seeing our students. And if, that, if for some reason we can't do that, we'll be seeing them all through a distance learning platform. Yeah. Charlotte Seals, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about this very important issue, and thank you what you're, for what you're doing to keep our children safe. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. School districts have until July 31st to submit their plans and strategies to the Mississippi Department of Education. As it stands, schools could be reopening in this pandemic environment without a state education budget. Earlier this month, Governor Reeves vetoed the legislature's budget bill, citing concerns over redirected funds. Reeves, who continues to encourage school districts to find creative ways to have in-class instruction, says he will not call a special session to address the education budget because he believes it isn't safe. We are still uh, only about 20 days past uh, when a large number of cases occurred uh, in the Mississippi legislature, and I don't believe uh, I don't believe it's safe to bring them back and put them in the, the Capitol at this juncture. Reeves says funds from CARES Act could be available for schools as they modify their needs and procedures during the pandemic. MDE Superintendent Kerry Wright will be on Mississippi Education Connection today, addressing concerns over school pandemic plans and answering questions from our callers. That's at 10 o'clock right here on MPB Think Radio. Coming up, a national prison reform group has its eyes on Mississippi following the governor's veto of a comprehensive reform bill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Corrections says it is investigating the death of a 32-year-old inmate, Nathaniel Brian Taylor. Taylor was housed in the South Mississippi Correctional Institution in Leakesville, but was taken by ambulance Wednesday to the Greene County Hospital, where he was pronounced dead in the emergency room. He is at least the 54th Mississippi inmate to die since late December, and the MDOC is currently under investigation by the Justice Department. 
Mississippi's prison system was a top priority heading into the new legislative session in January. Earlier this month, after a months-long hiatus due to the pandemic, lawmakers passed what they hoped would be a comprehensive prison reform bill. That bill was vetoed by Governor Tate Reeves. Now, Reform Alliance, a national prison reform group associated with hip-hop artist Jay-Z, is speaking out. Jessica Jackson is their chief advocacy officer. Mississippi began making headlines, you know, years ago for what was going on inside of their prisons, but that really came to a head in January when you had, you know, I think over a dozen people passed away um, inside of Parchman Prison even before um, the uh, COVID virus hit. Now, since COVID, you've had more deaths. You've had uh, people who they say have died of the flu or natural causes, but you know, we've seen um, a, a real rise in the number of people who've been dying in the prisons there. So when we saw SB 2123, which is, um, you know, a bill that was based on evidence-backed programs that showed, you know, that it was going to help people safely reenter. It was actually going to increase public safety and give uh, people who had been victims of crimes an increased role in the parole process. Um you know, we got very excited. It seems like a great solution to both make communities in Mississippi safer and to reduce the prison population so that, you know, hopefully people who were inside could start getting the help they needed and be treated with dignity. Mississippi does have one of the largest prison populations in the country. And this bill specifically would uh, have nonviolent offenders be eligible for parole after 25% of their sentence had been served. And for those with violent offenses, they would be eligible for parole after completing 50% of their sentence after 20 to 30 years, I guess, whichever came first. Um, Governor Reeves vetoed this bill saying that he didn't want violent people. One of the reasons why he didn't want violent people out on the streets. What's your response to that? I mean, I think his reasoning ignored the evidence uh, that this bill actually would have made communities safer. Essentially, he is allowing the status quo to continue. There's a really high recidivism rate. People who get out of prison and have not had a good reentry plan pulled together don't have an opportunity to get a job or housing. And when they come home and move in next door to you, you know, unfortunately, they don't really have the tools they need to succeed, and, and they end up going back. Um, I think that this bill was going to create a path for people to, an incentive for them to uh, rehabilitate themselves, to work on themselves before they came home. It was also going to create reentry plans for people who were coming home so that when they came home, they knew what they needed to do to succeed. Uh, just judging by the number of votes by which this passed in the House, it was 78 to 29. Mm-hmm. In the Senate, a little bit narrower, but still 26 to 17. It looks like there's a possibility that the votes would be there to override the veto. Have you gotten any indication that that might happen? We've been in conversation with legislators, particularly in the Senate. There were a couple that um, voted present that I believe could have uh, voted on this issue. I think they were um, newer to the Senate. 
I, I think there's a lot of folks in the Senate that just wanted um, to understand a little bit better what the bill was, you know, how this fit into the larger picture. We've been talking to them about, you know, the fact that these are smart reforms. These are reforms that are very similar to um, what we saw in the First Step Act, a federal criminal justice bill that the president signed that significantly reduced recidivism. Um, you know, these are not out of line with states like Georgia or Louisiana or even Texas, where they've been able to uh, put smart reforms like this into uh, law and actually close eight prisons while reducing uh, crime because they're investing in evidence-based reforms like 2123 and creating um, an opportunity for people to come home while making the community safer. So, you know, we've been working with the legislature. We've been asking people of Mississippi to continue to turn up their voices and, and to let their uh, senators know that they want to see this bill um, pass into law. They want, they want an override. Jessica Jackson is the Chief Advocacy Officer for Reform Alliance. Jessica, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.